My guest today is Mirola Mas, who has more than 12 years of product management experience, a background in consumer science and an MBA. She is the founder of Product People, a product management consultancy with 40 in-house full-time PMs who help as interims in Europe's top product companies. As an interim PM herself, she has personally contributed to companies like Tier, Salando, Omio, or the World Health Organization, and she continues to do so with her growing team. In this episode, we talk about the need for temporary staff when there's a gap due to a PM going on parental leave or even leaving the company. But also how Mirella introduced blind interviews in her recruitment process to identify the best talents, how she sees her workforce as the product itself, and the parallels she draws between being a founder and a product manager. Mirla has impressed me by her diverse experience and product cultures that she's encountered along her journey. I'm convinced that for PMs who want to get exposure to lots of different companies, product management consultancies can be a great way to acquire experience quickly and for companies to bring better product management practices within their organizations. Thank you very much, Mirella, for being with me today. I am so excited because I found out about your company when I was browsing online for really good product content, and I see you've got a great community. And then I saw the business model, and I was like, oh, wow, that sounds very interesting. And we're going to talk about your company later in this podcast. But first, I want to start with you. I can see you've got a background in computer science and also QA. So tell me a bit more about your journey. Yes, I graduated from uh, computer science back in the days. One of my uncles had also this background and he was working in the Netherlands back then. And he gave me the idea that this is a job that and a skill that you can go and work from anywhere with, or almost anywhere. Whereas other options I had in the table, for example, being a doctor needs all this recertification type of process that is it's cumbersome and very difficult to have if you're planning to not be in the same country all the time. Right, very interesting. And we're going to come back actually to a parallel maybe between being a doctor, which is helping patients, and your job right now, which is helping clients, which is quite similar to some extent. <laughs> yeah, also de dealing with diseases. <laughs> <laughs> yes, product diseases. <laughs> Right. I can see that you also have an MBA. So do you think that product managers should have an MBA? What did that bring to you? Oh, no, absolutely not. I think it was probably fashionable back then. Maybe it still is to some degree. I was hoping it gets me notice to go into people leadership to some degree. It did You mentioned earlier that I was doing QA. So I was doing QA automation for an antivirus and security company. And that helped me build the case internally that I shouldn't be doing this as an individual contributor. I should be getting a team as the scope of our work was expanding. And honestly, I wouldn't recommend it to people, especially in, in places where they would need to pay for it. Um, and for product management, the best training you can get is hands-on work at a company that does it relatively well or somewhere where you have peers that are more senior and you can learn from them. And if you're lucky, that company should also be scaling or growing quite a lot so that you get to see more of it as it develops. 
and definitely just the certificate or education I wouldn't recommend right now. There's still a school of thoughts that, that says maybe you should do it for the network. And I agree with that. In many leadership roles, it's the network that gets you there. Then those are quite expensive to do and get. So, so a random MBA, for sure not, unless you have an ulterior motive like pre-building a network if you're doing it. Great. Thank you. And I really appreciate the honesty of your response. And that's a nice transition, as you said, about managing people, because your company, Product People, is a product management consultancy. So basically, you have your own product managers and they go in other companies, your client, to help them. So most of the product management roles usually are in-house. So when is a good time to have an interim product manager? Could you give me some examples? Absolutely, and I'm, I'm glad you asked. One of them would be temporary staff gaps. And these would be a cases when you have PM going on parental leave, and depending on the country and other setups, that would be three to 12 months, either at a time or in at various amounts of time. Then the other part would be that PM is leaving, either by their own choice or you're not seeing underperformance there. And in general, it takes about three months at least to hire someone. Sometimes in Germany, it takes six because people tend to have a three-month notice period. And during that time, the team may lose momentum. They may start working on things that are not bringing value. And it's useful to have someone not only keeping the boat floating, but also pushing for short-term important initiatives, especially in times like this, uh, where path to profitability or operational excellence or revenue are the main goals. And there are sometimes a lot of short-term wins you can get even in these three months there if the basics uh, are met. Let's say you, you have a competent dev team and leadership is willing to, to take advice and, and so on and so forth. Okay, so to confirm, you're not advocating for having PMs as contractors all the time as a general setup. You're advocating for when there are gaps, your company is here to help maintain continuity and maybe bring an external perspective with a different pair of eyes and maybe some bring some of the best practices. Yes, absolutely. And then you may wonder, like, how is this a business model? There, there are companies that are large enough that there's always something happening. There's always someone leaving. There's always someone going on parental. There's someone taking a sabbatical or things always tend to happen. And the cost of keeping a dev team that loses space or sight of what's important to do or not having someone that is discovering initiatives as well as driving uh, ongoing ones, it's way higher than just our cost, which is of course higher than an an FTE would be because this is how we make money, of course. So in general, yes, I think product is a function that should be on a long-term in-house as a strategy. But you see that it's often that companies bring strategy consultants to do a sanity check or to help push an unpopular idea or to help change things as they also augment with other functions like development or design. So I think what helps product people is that we don't belong to any of these players. So we also help the client with an unbiased opinion of what should be done. Even if our visibility is not super vast in those amount of three to six months or 12 that were there. 
No, thank you very much for clarifying. And I can definitely see examples where a product manager has left or there's been a reorganization and the product manager had to do several products and obviously they couldn't do it because one product or you know whatever portfolio you get is enough already for one product manager and I could see the need to have more continuity and I think as a product manager I would really welcome to have someone who's got the type of so let's say it was you who came uh, to support my company I would welcome your experience because I've been so impressed by everywhere you've worked at so you know you've got PMs working at Zalando in DeepL which is like machine learning a wealth of experience also I saw with the World Health Organization that is such a wealth of experience that you can share when you come to a company. So can you tell me more about one of them? All of them were memorable in different ways. And even I had some engagements I didn't personally like because I didn't feel super connected to the culture. I realized those taught me a lot. And this is also how we value the seniority of our people. So we had a case where a client really liked one of our people and were aiming to take them over. And that person was waiting for the engagement to end. And it really went also into the performance review that they were so good and professional that the client couldn't tell that they actually are not enjoying the type of work or there, but they still did such a good job. And so I think from my end as well, I've had cases where looking back, I still learned from the companies where I thought, oh, those company, this company wasn't that product centric, but they had a very good sales team. And you can understand how some departments function better or worse in different organizations and how this impacts you. Or one memorable part was seeing one of our clients to hypergrowth, where everything was literally either not sorted out or falling apart. So there were no processes. There were 20 new people joining every day in different departments. You would establish a way of working with a certain area. And then that would change next month. And I was there only for four months. And I was like, oh, but I thought I've settled this. And now we have a way of working. And they're like, no, we just hired a new person that will take this area on. And this person that wants to do something completely different. And it was interesting to learn what held them together. For that specific case, it was a very strong culture. And the fact that they've hired a lot of energetic and enthusiastic people that really like the mission. And the fact that they didn't have too many skills to start with, or there was no process, didn't stop them until very, very late. And by then they could already add more senior leadership and so on. Or at other companies where things are working very well, it's nice to understand the the processes. And for me, I also feel it's like discovering a new culture and a new country, because it's not just the product. A lot of people are like, yeah, I'm playing the I have to see how the product works. Yes, that's just one part, but you need to understand very well the business model. You need to understand what is the organizational setups, what kind of influence and impact and power different departments have on the product team. How is their way of working, the formal and informal one? So those have been things that sometimes were more interesting for me than even the product work, because the product work would be like, oh, okay, we need to launch this country or we need to improve this North Star metric. So we're going to run a few A-B tests and we're also working on some greenfield discovery. It, a lot of people say, no, but our product is so different and our company is so different and so on. It's kind of not. If you break it down, all of them have acquisition, monetization, retention, and integrations, then some compliance, depending on each type. You can break down the product area quite well. And then there are more or less interesting things to do there. And 
quite repeatable playbooks to some degree. And this is also why we encourage at product people to share knowledge generously unless there's an uh, let's say a competitor problem that we would then have to shield the people working on direct competitors on. But for the rest, it's quite a lot of knowledge sharing and it applies in places where you wouldn't think they apply. So we mentioned Zalando. At Zalando, we worked with four different business units. One of them was supply and logistics related. And another one was on the user engagement for, so not shopping necessarily, just app openings and weekly active users. So many people will say, oh, okay, you have e-commerce background. But no, we actually have a lot of other knowledge that we've gained just by working on a client that is in e-commerce. Great. That sounds fantastic. And when you talked about that last initiative in Salando, that makes me think this is a bit like the role of growth product manager. So do you have different types of product managers? So obviously different seniority levels. And sometimes you have to bring in a CPO, for example, or an analyst product manager that's a bit more junior. And also growth product manager, technical product manager and core product managers or platform product managers, data products. So you have that range of capabilities in-house? Yes. So some of them, uh, people come with, let's say they have a tech background like I do. In other cases, they gain this knowledge by working on some of our engagements. To give a more context to that, we look like body leasing, but we don't do body leasing per se. So a client would pay for an engagement or a PM and they get three people supporting from us, one of them being the main client-facing person. And in that case, the PM comes assisted by an associate for tactical support and is mentored and managed by a group product manager or our VP of product, depending on the complexity of the engagement and what these other people that are supervising have as their knowledge and background. So we do set up our people get the 3x exposure to these different areas either to the hands-on work, to the support role, or to the mentoring and management role. And this helps us, again, have more knowledge of these assignments. So, of course, with one growth uh, engagement at the client, we already have three people now who have experience in this, aside from the ones that came from outside product people that had it. But indeed, these are type of roles that we serve quite a lot, payments-related growth, different types of integrations or compliance, user retention or activation, kind of anything you can think of that's quite narrow in a, in a product team, we do it, as well as pure discovery missions. Although those are less common than people think, because a lot of PMs say, oh yeah, I would love to do just discovery. And it's usually not, not how it happens. Most of the time, you, you it comes with other delivery work that you need to take care of and make time for discovery. Yeah, I've noticed you mentioned several times the word hands-on and it is my understanding that you prefer to do hands-on work with clients rather than coaching them. There's always a coaching part of your business as well, but your thinking is bring a PM in the client's organization and get them to do the work and show how it's done and this is how people learn. What has led you to have this sort of thinking and to think that actually seeing people do product management is better than trying to explain people how to do it? I would believe pragmatism. One of the things that we have in our hiring process is we do blind case study assignments. So people don't know who they're rating. They just have a target seniority. But if they like the case, they can say, well, this person applied for senior PM, but they look more like a PM. There's 
already the basics for a PM1 at product people met, but we could offer that. So we've had cases where some people were applying for group product managers or manager of senior PMs and PMs, and they were just ranked as a PM. Well, that person does a lot of LinkedIn thought leadership and quotation marks coaching and so on. So in we've changed after some experimentation of philosophy at product people is that we tend to promote from within. So anyone who's managing people right now has grew this internally. And at the same time, look for very good individual contributors who can develop few other skills rather than take pure people management or self-proclaimed coaches and give them team responsibilities. I think it's maybe also our biased experience, but we have seen sometimes that someone who interviews well or writes well or have has all the shiny appearance then fails to do the actual work and to also explain a bit our bias, people are generally skeptical to agencies, right? Because anyone can start an agency. There are a lot of low quality setups out there. And that makes the barrier to entry is very easy as an agency. But then the getting past that and acquiring and retaining good clients is an incredibly hard work. And I think this is also why most agencies die in obscurity or just don't make it past a few people which are then more like a one or two person type of businesses. And I think the coaching part is the best way to get there because you won't be able to have very well managed, measurable results. Whereas if we have a hands-on PM there, that PM increases certain KPIs. So they're making leadership look good. They're making us look good. And who is a product leader who wouldn't want some people there to help them that are not a risk to take over their role, which unfortunately, internally, a lot of the PM setups are people elbowing each other to get to the group PM or the director role because there's no other way to go up. Whereas a contractor like us knows it's not there to take someone else's leadership position. Mostly our goal would be to be renewed or to be brought in back whenever there's a similar looking contract. So we do interim product leadership engagements as well. As we have a few people who have grown out of the PM, senior PM role and won't do the hands-on work, but most of the time they spend monitoring existing engagements and making sure we have our best practices across clients. We can also understand the complexity and the, the setups so that we help our PMs and that our PMs don't get feedback only from the clients, but also from us internally because clients may also be unreliable narrators. They could be overly happy or overly not happy with something that we may or may not consider a problem. So then helping our PM there and and helping ourselves understand very well how well our people are doing is very important. Right. That was an amazing answer. I really love the the blind interviews with the exercise. I agree that this is the best way to assess (laughs) the skills of a, a PM rather than relying on maybe what's on the CV. And the part about having more senior product managers, you know, almost in that group PM director looking at the project because they can then judge from a product perspective as well with their own experience how the engagement is doing as opposed to having that biased view maybe sometimes from clients. Now, very good, very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing this. Also something our people enjoyed and it has also given us more predictability because We want our people to take days off or sick days 
but the clients may not be someone so understanding that hey this contractor just uh, got corona and is out for two weeks and we need to do our quarterly planning so with this setup we can have the more senior person and the tactical support associate intervene and keep things going while our pm can take their sick days off or their vacation same for also these other two functions because the other two people can hold things together or even move them through in one or two weeks whereas otherwise it would be a lot to pick up when someone comes back from a sick leave that's a very good example as well so when you talk about your company you almost talk about a product it's as if your employees are your product so how do you manage such a company and what are the parallels between being a founder and being a product manager so how, how do i manage product people being the first one i would take on i consider we have a few stakeholders that we need to make happy in order to be successful and i think that was what inspired me from spotify and airbnb they were also talking in terms of stakeholder groups so one of the stakeholder groups is obviously our employees for which we deliver value as in helping them level up helping them work with very interesting brands so that at some point they could move on and take almost any job that they wish to take but they also get this accelerated learning in a very short amount of time so we we joke that at product people product people years are more like cat years to each person having roughly four different client engagements in 12 months the other part that's very important is our clients because they are the ones we make money from and they need to be happy to come back or to recommend us to other clients which has been our engine of growth so far as acquiring new clients is sometimes a process that takes roughly two years so you can imagine it's just easier to continue working and continue doing well at the clients you already have or have the ones that don't have a temporary need right now come back a few months later and of course another stakeholder group is the community because the community has graciously brought in a lot of people interested to work with us and also interested to go through our quite long hiring process with the case study and the blind review and a few other things last time we checked about six out of our 40 in-house uh, employees are have found about us through the community or or some community related content and got them interested to apply and the fourth stakeholder group is of course our shareholders including myself because the company needs to make money as well so we have employees clients community and shareholders as the four stakeholder groups for which we optimize for and try to make happy so that product people is also successful and to that degree it's also a bit of product management thinking in this but in other cases being a pm hasn't fully helped me because as a pm you have way more slack than than you think you do as a founder as a founder you need to deal with a lot of escalations so like literally everything would escalate to me friendly approach for other cases you need to act counterintuitively especially when negotiating deals or sales or having to protect the interest of the company whereas as a pm it's i would say it's a lot easier so i didn't know how easy i had it there were always sales to blame and there were always others that did something that i didn't have a lot of say in but i could also then detach emotionally from whereas at product people i'm ultimately to blame for everything so i can't just say well you know sales promised that or 
yeah, sure, the client doesn't know what they're doing and so on. No, it's kind of still our fault. We need to educate the client. We need to understand also how we're structuring the sales process or what we're discussing. So there's basically nowhere to hide. And that makes it also quite emotionally difficult, especially dealing with people situations. Maybe one thing that helped me is that I try to analyze if I made a decision with the information that I had at some point. Annie Dorkel has two pretty good books on decision-making. First one is Thinking in Bets. She's a famous poker player who then ended up doing management coaching or different workshops to help people make better decisions. So that was one of the parts that took a bit of pressure off because I look back and think, have I made a good decision based on the information that I had back then? And if yes, then even if the outcome is not so great, then I can move on and see what I can do better next time to have more information or to prevent this type of thing from happening again. And we've done this several times and product people reflected in our processes, our ways of hiring, and also our ways of accepting certain client engagements or structuring them. Right. I like how you mentioned the responsibility and the fact that now everything falls onto you. There's no hiding <laughs> and the blaming other people, which to be honest, when that happens, when a salesperson commits to something that is not on the roadmap, or I, I always think that's my fault as a product manager. I didn't explain it well, but I guess for you, it's a totally different dimension. Yeah, it's also sometimes I didn't know how dystopian purchasing processes or anything related to sales is in some companies. And that gave me a bit more context on, yeah, these salespeople also need to do something to get the deal through. And then after you've got it through a lot of dystopian departments, you actually check what's happening there and what's feasible. So it gave me a bit more perspective on what kind of hoops or what incredibly difficult hoops you need to go through. And coming back to one of the engagements where it wasn't a very product-led company, it was all wine and dine sales. And that also made me aware of how many of these things are not even about the product anymore. They're about the relationship a salesperson had. They're about some department just rubber stamping something and then reverse engineering certain parts of the contract or the product so that these departments rubber stamp the software to be bought and so on. So in B2B, this is way too common and probably also a reason why people then go on LinkedIn and complain that, oh, this is not product-led growth and so on. It makes sense to have product-led growth if you have relatively small or medium tickets, but for some cases, it didn't seem to work, at least in our experience with some of the client engagements that we noticed. Right. Thank you so much for sharing this. So I've got a question from Sean Gaggi, who is an associate product manager too in your company about growing your company. So let's hear it. How do you imagine scaling an agency without compromising on quality? Right. One of the way we're doing is to benchmark talent. So we have nine levels inside the company, starting from intern to VP of product. And whenever we hire someone in the blank case review, people are leveled against this uh, baseline. The other part is the trio working model that helps us get insights also from the product people team, not only from the client team, which makes it then easier to appraise people between different type of client engagements, 
whereas someone may have an easier client engagement and get raving reviews, and someone may be thrown in into a very political situation where and may not get so raving reviews, or reviews may vary between cultures with German people saying it's fine when they're very happy, and people based out of the US saying it's awesome when it's relatively normal standard work. So that's part of the hiring. Then the, the promotions as well, we look for sustained performance at the next level before we promote people and aim to promote them when they are ready to take on the next responsibility. Usually we've been way more successful with in-house promotions from one level to the other rather than outside hires, but we did have some amazing outside hires directly at senior PM level and so on that has helped us even make our practice better. So we're open to both. But having this standard way of looking at things helps us quite a lot. Another part is that we try to get our people engaged also internally. So the way we allocate is a maximum four days per week per client for each person, which means that they would have some buffer time on Fridays to upskill and share knowledge internally. So we don't see ourselves as body leasing. We actually expect people to contribute to product people internally. Many of our PMs are leading internal initiatives aside from their client work and doing that quite successfully. So the community efforts that you're seeing are also led on a round robin by our team. Part of the recruiting process, we have talent acquisition coordinating, but the rest is all judged by our team as well as the, the final uh, leveling for people. And also some part of the client acquisition where we have this also relatively less managed because we know at some point the client will still want to talk with the person who they will be collaborating with and so on. And we try to make that quite low effort to do and be less of a sales team driven type of organization, but more of, hey, the clients need to understand what we do and trust what we're going to do and speak with the person who will be their main contact point, And that's it. And with this model, at the level of seniority, people also get profit participation from the home company so that there's less incentive to have turf wars between, hey, this is my client and this is your client. And we just deprioritize your client because I will get only things from my side. And it's a model that I haven't invented. I just saw it at the large consultancy firms as well as the large accounting firms. And it has been proven over and over again. It's also a good incentive for the people who want to stay in-house and for the people that see that this is not for them, they still get something out of product people. So it's a win-win on all sides, including for our company and our clients. Right. I love that to say, you know, you're not reinventing the wheel. You take inspiration from other things. And I think that's a lot of what we do as product people as well. So one of the things that I loved is how the fifth day of the week, your employees can spend the time sharing knowledge internally, but also learning about new things. And when I see the list of engagements you had, some of them were related to data science, so a bit technical. So did you work yourself, for example, on data science products? And what's it like as a PM if you've never done it before? Do you need to learn? Does that come naturally? Do you not need to be that technical? What's your take on that? Yeah, so I, I did one of this engagement myself, other by our team. And also not only data science, but one of the products that I helped on Zalando with is 
it was mostly ML algorithms and I was more of a stakeholder of the applied science team. So I even didn't have, let's say, full PM control over. It's relatively easier than when you have a, a new UI because on the UI, everyone can give uh, opinions on and if you have this a bit of stakeholders that feel like they need to discuss the copy with you in a very long Slack thread, then it's probably not my favorite type of engagement. Whereas here, it was harder for the stakeholders to micromanage because you could only give feedback on the output of this model. And the output of this model were of different outfits that would fit with an item you bought or an item you looked at. If, let's say, you looked at a pair of sneakers and you would put an outfit together based on what the model thing, thought you would like. And then, and of course, it's also very subjective because some people could say, well, I don't like what it gave me or why why am I seeing these pants and so on. But you couldn't go to, back to the applied science team and micromanage them and say, hey, please don't give this pair of pants to this person, right? Because then you're adding an unnecessary business rule for like one scenario. We did add a few business rules, but it was more on things that we saw would prevent the model from doing well when it sometimes got into this you know how you on YouTube you see a video about something and then YouTube thinks, oh, this is everything this person wants to see for the rest of their life. And this is how you end up with these conspiracy theories. Well, ours also had like that. If you looked at certain sneakers, it will think, oh, you this person wants to see these sneakers everywhere. So at some point we had to add a deduplication role to not do that as people saw it as a problem that they're seeing things that looked too duplicated. And to get to my point, I think it's easier to set goals and to set things to measure because you don't have something to get too visually attached to. Also, the timelines are relatively long that you need to put a lot of thought into it of what you want. Doing a lot of upfront user research was also very helpful here. And it also helped us buy time with management because you need to give relatively good guidelines of what people would want and then let the team reverse engineer that and then A-B test uh, various versions or changes to this model and see what it delivers. At another client, it was more on improving the performance around how certain reports were generated and which on... So it was a client that dealt with heaps of data and where people would check reports. I can't say too many things because then maybe obvious from our client list. But the problem they had there is that since they were charging on volume, the most valuable customers were the ones with large volumes of data and emails. And for those, the UI would end up staggering. So we needed to prioritize various performance-related topics, which again, it sounds a bit less like PM work, but it was PM work. We were looking at which are the clients that bring in the most uh, revenue, what are the problems that are they seeing right now, and optimize towards this ideal customer profiles or ideal customer profile plus. So it's less technical than most people think. And this was also one of the advice we gave to a client because they were struggling hiring because there aren't many people who've done this before. And my advice was like, you actually need someone who has more commercial sense, especially in, in that case, it was a B2B product and understands how to liaise with customer success and with sales, as well as with the development team to understand reasonable timelines and prioritize various initiatives depending on the customer profiles that you're optimizing for. But it's not so much about the technical aspect. 
because they were looking for people who can do SQL queries and so on and so forth. It's like, it's not necessarily what, what you would need. This is also something the development team can help you with temporary, it's especially in a, in a B2B setup. It's more about having the commercial sense and knowing how to leverage the departments who bring in the clients because those are the ones interacting with them every day. We even use the customer success team to do user research because we wanted to do that at a time where their clients, which were all in e-commerce, were super busy, which is the last quarter of the year. But they would always have calls with customer success because they needed to set up more complex campaigns or there were some edge cases. And then we used that to sneak a few questions in and get customer success to bring us the answers for those questions. Great. Thank you very much. And I think that's quite reassuring because, as you say, it's right that PMs themselves, but also the companies who want to hire them, think that PMs should be super technical. And it's not necessarily the case, even with data science products. So. My last question before we move on to the fire questions. Is there one tool that you carry all the time with you in your toolbox? You know, for example, as a founder or as a PM, if there is something that you you always have and you're like, oh, let's let's use this tool and it's gonna help us. I'm a big fan of Miro, especially when planning things visually. And I've used it in my client work. We've also used it internally. Definitely go for that. And then plain old Google Docs or notes. Because sometimes I just write to clarify my thoughts and it's super useful. So a mix of these writing somewhere where you can write things and somewhere where you can doodle and have things represented visually have been my go-to tools for everything. Great. Perfect. So let's move on to the last part of the interview, which is the fire question. So I'll present you with two or more options and you choose one of them. You can simply answer or if you want to elaborate, you can. So first one, B2B or B2C? B2B, although I've enjoyed a few B2C engagements as well. I feel that it's easier to be pragmatic in B2B and also measure what value you're delivering. Whereas in B2C, you can do a lot of silly things just because they seem nice or they seem cute to A-B test. Right. Slack or Teams? Definitely Slack. And for people who want to complain about Teams, there are worse things like Google Chat or Skype for business, or many others. So the, if you're complaining about teams, you haven't reached the last uh, circles of hell. Yeah, that's brilliant. I didn't know Skype for business was still a thing. <laughs> me, me either, but I had to take a call with an older school organization, and that's what they put in the invite. Awesome. VT founded crowdfunding or your own funds? So I can only talk from our experience. I would say if, depending on your background, VC founded could be easier because you're spending someone else's money. You just need the, the connection and the story and everything out there that you would get founded for that. It wasn't the case for me and, and I'm very happy it turned out this way. Right. Founder or product manager? Currently founder. Bucharest or Berlin? Also Berlin. Remote or in person? Definitely remote. With in-person meetings every one to six months, depending on regional availability. We've started expanding product people in the midst of the pandemic. So everyone was onboarding with us remote first and we kept it like that. And it has worked wonderfully for us. We also have some people who have kids and it helps them pick up the kids at some point in time or they're just used to being more productive at home as they would be disturbed in an office setting. We do, however, like visiting clients for 
certain alignment meetings or in-person uh, workshops, but the default is working remotely. Great. Thank you so much for this interview. I've really learned a lot and I found your company and your business model very exciting. I'm super jealous almost of the opportunities you've had to work with as many clients and see different cultures, as you said. So what I've taken from what you said is sometimes you you just you come in a company and you do some quick wins as well. Yes, there is the delivering this, releasing that, but there are some quick wins that your employees can do to improve the product practices. So if we've got product managers listening right now, what are the top three things that they can do or implement in the company when they first join or to make things better? I first suggest that when joining, first observe and understand what kind of environment you're in. Unless you were brought in there directly to transform or change certain processes, first observe what's working and what's not, and even tag along for a few things. Once you've started establishing some credibility or if you see some opportunity space well, where a process is not defined or documented or existing at all, you can bring your own. And if it's accepted, then it works and you've already gained some trust and you can build up on that. And most of the times, I would say, find people and problems pertaining to your scope. There are sometimes simple things that we noticed organizations don't do, like having proper documentation and discussing publicly on either Slack or Microsoft Teams channels that make it very hard for new joiners to understand what's going on or who to talk to or anything like that. So I, I don't think there's a fancy solution, although I've been asked about that, was interviewed the, the other week when someone wants to start some sort of service of company that helps organizations with discovery and was asking us if we've seen this as a problem. And I, like we've seen so many more basic problems that companies don't do. I doubt that this is going to be top of their list since they're not just covering some basics. Right. Thank you very much. And I agree that this is the best approach. First, listening. That is what uh, we should do first as a product manager. Uh, documenting definitely so many gaps for new joiners when they arrive and they are trying to figure out what's happening and uh, open communication channels. Great. So what if people really liked the interview and they want to carry on the conversation with you, ask a question, find out more about your company? What should they do? One idea would be my LinkedIn profile. So for me personally, although sometimes I respond super fast and sometimes I respond within a week. The other part would be to visit getproductpeople.com. If you're a prospective client wanting to chat with us, there's an easy way to book a call or, or send an email. Uh, you can also see a few case studies and clients we've worked with. If you're someone who enjoyed learning about what we do and would consider to work for product people, despite our bit longer hiring process, you can check our job section. So currently we will be reopening PM role from January because at the end of the year, people tend to be on holidays. So we will be slow at processing these applications. So, that, so that's, that's about it. And if you're interested in more product people content, you can check out up our coming events on Meetup or see the videos from the past events on YouTube also search for product people and you're going to find them. Perfect. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed that conversation. I've loved the wealth of experience that you have, all the tips and the different perspectives as well from in the client, outside the client, as the founder, as a product manager, CPO and all of that. Thank you so much for taking the time to share this with me.
Welcome to Product Perspectives, the podcast for product people that gives a voice to their stakeholders, hosted by Magali Pelissier. Each weekly episode shows you the other side of the product with interviews of the people who contribute to making products a success. They are engineers, writers, marketers, support analysts, UX designers, or even salespeople. Not only will they get the credit they deserve, but they will share their perspectives on what makes a good product and product manager. Stakeholder management is a key skill for product managers. So just as you're obsessed with listening to your customers, let's hear from your stakeholders. Thank you everyone for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. If you have suggestions for topics and guests or any feedback, you can write to Magali Pelissier at hotmail.fr.